1: Welcome everyone to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell and with me today to answer all of your many questions is a man who has answers to those questions. Why is the sky blue? What is the sound of one hand clapping? Can I scream into my opponent's face? We're going to answer at least one of those. With me to do that is Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe.
2: Hello, Taylor. Man, I've had the whole "Why is the sky blue?" thing explained to me so many times, yep. and yep. I still do not know the answer <laughs> off the top of my head. So I'm glad we're not actually going to be talking about that, and we're going to be talking about. I think it was the third question that you listed there. Uh,
1: <laughs> yep. I, I'm doing. I'm doing well. I'm glad to be here. Let's answer some questions, man. Dude, I've done that same thing where I've been like, I'm a, like, I really did happen when I think my wife was pregnant. I was like, I'm, I'm a dad. My child is going to ask me why is the sky blue. <laughs> yeah. I need to have a succinct answer for this. I'm sure that exists. And after two minutes of reading the, the first Google response. I was like, nope, it's it's prisms and reflected color. And <laughs> I, it was too much for me. It was too much. So I'm with you on that one. But hopefully we can answer, yeah, at least one of those. Uh, but we do have several good ones to get to. They range from Champions League to international soccer to a little bit of U.S. soccer as well. Uh, should note, if you're listening to this, the day it comes out, Joe and I are going to be answering some more questions this evening over on Stereo. Answering all of your many questions about all of the many U.S. national teams. Could be the men's, could be the women's, could be the U23s. We're going to get into all of it. If people want to get into it with us, they can do that again at 8 p.m. But for now, Joe, we have our first question. Uh, would you like to ask or would you like to answer? I'd like to ask if that's okay right. with you. Because
2: mm-hmm. I, I, think, I think there's some emotion that goes with this and I'm ready to bring it. This one's from Jackie <laughs> Choi uh-huh. who says... Sigh. Here goes. (laughs) Does the United States qualify for the Olympics if all available domestic U23 players were released? Are there changes that would have made an impact in retrospect? I get that this would have been a hard sell to the European clubs, but how did U.S. soccer not have the power to overrule Atlanta United? Taylor, Mm -hmm. where do you want to take this one?
1: Uh, I want to take it in two different directions. The first would be regarding maybe some of those changes, specifically Jeremy uh, Ibobisi and Eric Williamson. We have another question about that uh, next up. So we can maybe hold off on the Portland part of the conversation for a second for the Atlanta one specifically, because I think to Jackie's point, there were players that maybe would have been called up that probably would have made that team at least two, maybe all three of the Atlanta United players who were originally called into camp, Miles Robinson, George Bellow, Brooks Lennon, uh, but then were not released because there was a conflict with, I believe, the start of the CONCACAF Champions League. They would have, if they had made the final, which obviously didn't end up being the case, but if they had, they would have had to quarantine uh, coming back from the competition, which would have made them miss the start of the CONCACAF Champions League. So I think that's why Atlanta said no, I also feel like in reading Felipe's article about Gabriel uh, Ince and his approach to management, which is pretty severe and pretty (laughs) rule-oriented, detail-oriented, you have to do it this way, I can envision a scenario in which somebody from Atlanta went to him and said, hey... There are these three guys that are being called up. Uh, we, you know, are you okay to let them go? And he was like, is it a FIFA window? No, then no. (laughs) Like, I I can totally see him being like, no, I I have no allegiance to U.S. soccer, nor should he, because that's not what he's being paid to do. He's being paid to take Atlanta as far as he can. So I think that's probably part of it. And I think maybe that that could have been better communication or maybe a little bit better planning from any of the involved parties. But I I do understand why U.S. soccer can't really force their hand because it's not a FIFA window. And you also don't want to risk alienating teams, frustrating teams, when you might need their players later on down the road. The question of are there other people who could have been involved? We've talked a little bit about Keaton Parks, Joe, you and I have. Um, So that's one where I'm a little bit fuzzier. And I think I'll I'll hold my hands up at this point and say that like, I have – now, obviously, more, but at the time when we started previewing this, I had some familiarity with this roster from past experience with some of the players and then obviously watching footage, reading and everything like that. But I would say I'm probably not as, you know, I don't watch every single Portland game the way Portland fans do. So I think some of the response to me felt like, oh, this is fans just wanting their players on the roster. And I think in retrospect... I can understand more why there was some consternation about certain players not being included. And I think this is where the the holding of the hands up gets even higher is that I think my mind in previewing this team was that they were good enough to qualify as they were. And so to me, it felt like, do you need to swap out one midfielder for another? I don't know. Like, I think they're going to be okay. I think they're going to qualify. So it didn't feel like as big of an issue. And now that they haven't, I look back on that as maybe that was a little bit of hubris. Maybe that was a little bit of overconfidence on my part or just a sort of a lack of a critical eye or the necessary extent of a critical eye. Uh, That was a lot of thoughts, Joe. I I turned it to you to respond to them as best you can. (laughs)
2: Yeah, just quickly to to retouch on the Atlanta United thing one more sure. time. We've kind of talked about it before, and you just said it, but to say it really explicitly, clubs, MLS clubs or otherwise, mm-hmm. don't have to release players for unofficial FIFA competitions, right? Atlanta United was not at all obligated to release Miles Robinson, Bello, or Brooks Lennon. They didn't have to. Hines, clearly didn't want to. Carlos Bocanegra didn't want to. They thought they were going to work something out, and it just didn't happen. And so Atlanta said, nope, we're going to keep those guys and get ready for CCL. They're I mean, that's their prerogative. That's their right to do that. It was slightly unfortunate, but then to, to transition to the part that kind of you, you flipped to me, Taylor. I mean, do we think, do we think Miles Robinson or George Bellow or Brooks Lennon or even, man, even a lot of the other guys left at home, maybe the Portland guys that we're going to talk about in just a minute. Like, would, would they have transformed how Jason Crisis team played? Like, we saw this team play three group stage games. There were moments that looked quite good. But there were moments that just looked so slow and sloppy and turnovers, balls bouncing out of bounds. I mean, these guys were – I feel like I'm going to be sounding like I'm making a lot of excuses here. These guys are out of season, and they were being coached by a coach from the sample size that we got. A coach that looked like he didn't really know how to properly organize this team to play the style of soccer that they were trying to emulate from the U.S. men's senior team. So – I mean, I, I don't think with the Atlanta guys that would have made a huge difference. Miles Robinson probably would have started. George Bellow wouldn't have started over Sam Bynes. And I don't know where Brooks Lennon would have fit. But I don't think the Atlanta guys would have made a, a huge difference. I think Keaton Parks, and I said this back in our preview show. We talked about this, as you mentioned, Taylor. I think Keaton Parks would have brought some nice connectivity in midfield. He can get on the ball in tight spaces. He's smooth on the ball. He's not like a, a super big creative player. But he is comfortable on the ball, and, that, and so that's a nice asset. I think another guy, if if we're going by the premise of Jackie's question, which is would the U.S. qualify for the Olympics if all available domestic U23 players were released? Taylor, a guy that I think would have helped maybe more so than any other player that we've ever talked about is Efra Alvarez. He couldn't come mm. into this group because he's off with Mexico's senior team or he declined the, the call up to either yeah. the Mexico U23s or the U.S. U23s. And later we find out that's probably to go and play with Tata Martino and Mexico and their friendlies. But man, the U.S. lacked creativity. They lacked ideas on the ball within their set structure. Yeah, the U.S. wants the system to be the playmaker, but you still need guys like Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna to really maximize the system's effectiveness, to maximize the overall team cohesiveness in the final third the U.S. U23s lacked that down in Mexico. And I think, Taylor, I think Ephra Alvarez, maybe you toss in a player like Caden Clark, just, just wingers who can tuck inside and allow the fullbacks to overlap and then actually create in those narrower areas. I think guys like Alvarez, and Alvarez specifically, would have made the biggest impact of any single player left at home.
1: I don't disagree with anything you've said. I do think it's probably a good idea to fold in the next question, and then we can have that yeah, broader conversation. Because sure. to your point about lacking cohesiveness, I think that is like the fundamental thing that we should probably talk about. But the question specifically for Joe comes from Ben Trimbo. Uh, it's a, a long one, but I will read it. Uh, yeah, I'll read the whole thing. He has stated, uh, Joe has stated multiple times that the U23s would not have been any better or different with uh and Eric Williamson. I'm curious as to why he has doubled down on that statement. Jeremy and Eric are starters for a very competitive MLS team, fighting for positions against quality competition uh, and competing in a league with much higher talent levels than the U23 national teams the U.S. had to play against. Jeremy has scored equally with his left foot, right foot and head. He is always a threat and I find it hard to believe that if he was around the box against Honduras, things would uh, not have been more dangerous. Eric has excellent on-the-ball skills and has shown repeatedly against quality competition that he can dribble through and around pressure, find attacking passes and is solid on defense. Uh, So I think it's unfair to say adding start quality MLS players on this team would not have made a difference, but maybe I'm missing something says Ben, who again, I have to believe that Ben is a Portland fan. It's just worth acknowledging that like, if you have a fan, or if you are a fan of a team and those players aren't called in, you are going to have a more vested interest in them, you're going to have observed little things that Joe and I probably have not, and you are going to feel more closely connected to them, but that doesn't always necessarily mean that that connection and that defense is correct. So, with that in mind, Joe, with that framing in mind, without me saying anything, I will turn it over to you to answer. Yeah, and actually,
2: think credit to
1: Ben. I assume he is a Portland fan as well, but I think mm-hmm. it's a pretty
2: fairly worded question with a lot of like actual good analysis in there. And so, Ben, thank you for the question. This is a good thing for for us to talk about. I think. So, I want to just for a second. I guess, debate the premise of the question, though, after I mm-hmm. just complimented it. Ben <laughs> talked about how I've said a couple times that the USU 23s would not have been any better or different with Abobasi and Eric Williamson. And I went back and listened just to make sure I wasn't crazy that's to our preview bro. show and to that's that's our Honduras bro. review show. And in the preview show, I said that Eric Williamson wasn't infinitely more creative than the other central midfielders on the roster, than Dotson, Perea, Cardoso, mm-hmm. Mihailovic, Yule Tessmane. I said I also wasn't convinced that Ebobisi was necessarily a better option as a nine than Ferreira or Soto. I did say, though, that Ebobisi might make the team better. So I I don't think I ever said, and even similar ideas on the review show, I don't think that Eric Williamson or Nibobese or any of the other players really left at home who were available would make the team look entirely different. I don't think there was going to be a night and day change if you bring Eric Williamson instead of Johnny Cardoso, even though Williamson, I believe, 100% is a better player right now than Johnny Cardoso. I don't know what he looked like in camp, but from what we've seen, I think Williamson's better. And I, I, I don't think things look night and day different if Obobese comes instead of Soto or instead of Ferreira. Could those guys have been useful to the team? absolutely there were omissions that we can see now especially that would have helped the team keaton parks clark even williamson abobasi sure toss those mm-hmm. guys in there i felt like some of the narrative taylor maybe i overreacted to what i felt the narrative was but i felt like some of the narrative about crisis roster and then that roster's inability to qualify for tokyo was that Ibobasi and williamson specifically would have changed everything and mm-hmm. i just don't think that's true right i don't think any one or even two of the players left at home or who weren't released by atlanta would have made this group look infinitely better, right? Am, am I crazy to think that? I don't, I don't think that the Portland guys would have helped the U.S., you know, to help their attacking shape look tighter and look more well established in the attacking half. I don't think it would have helped them move the ball more effectively by just plopping in two, two guys. And they could be any two guys left at home, not just the Portland guys. I just think the U.S. had bigger systemic problems. That could have looked slightly better with players that were left off the roster. Sure, like that could have happened, but I don't think they would have looked so much better that they would have automatically qualified.
1: Yeah, I think I think that is a really important distinction that you're drawing there, Joe, and one that I think is the correct distinction that we can have those kind of conversations about should this person have been on the roster? Should they have not been on the roster? Unless it's a situation like Landon Donovan being left off. And even then, people, some people might think that was justified. But in the moment, it felt like this is a massive talking point. I think we recorded an emergency podcast about it. We had not planned to. But when that news breaks of that magnitude, it becomes a huge talking point. It was a limited talking point about some of the players that weren't called in weren't included. But I think, to your point, Joe, the reason why is because none of those players are going to be the ones that you throw in. There's no Erling Holland, there's no Kylian Mbappe in there that you're going to throw on and they're going to score a hat trick. And again, that's not trying to be discourteous to uh, Ibo Bissi or to Eric Williamson, but... You're absolutely right that it comes down to the team and do those players come in and maybe create more chances? Do they maybe uh, score some goals? Does the U.S. maybe qualify again? Maybe. But there's also a chance that they come in and don't start or don't get as many minutes or it's the same sort of roadblocks and obstacles because they're not set up to play in the way they need to. There's not the squad consistency. There's not the kind of tournament mentality that a coach can bring in uh, when you're looking at how do we get a result here against this this particular opponent versus how do we play this style of football that we want to play on a philosophical level. I think you're right, Joe, that maybe we get better performances here and there, but I don't think that it's as much of a difference maker as that team being better prepared for the individual opponents. And it's
2: such a fine line here because I, I want to be clear. I think there were issues with how Christ constructed this roster. I think guys like Williamson and Abobasi could have helped this group. I think they were better players, especially with Williamson in midfield. I think he's just straight up a better option. He's a better player than Johnny Cardoso. I said that already. I think that can be true. And you can say, man, the U.S. didn't have its best roster. But I think it can also be true that saying, even though they didn't have that roster, if they had had that best roster, they still wouldn't have looked infinitely better. And I could be wrong about all of this. I'm very open to being wrong about all of this. I'd love to go back in time and be proven mm-hmm. wrong, but we won't really ever know. We're gonna be stuck at a maybe, like you're saying, Taylor. Mm-hmm. But I mean, man, I still I still don't think Eric Williamson or Abobacy, even though Ben makes a lot of good points, they have MLS experience in, mm-hmm. in ways that a lot of other players on this roster didn't. They have some individual talent. Ebobacy can score goals in a number in a number of different ways. Eric Williamson can do some nice things on the ball. But I don't think to go back to my original point all the way back on our preview show or on our Honduras review show. I don't think that any one or two players, maybe barring Efra Alvarez, would really change the way this team plays and make them look like a really good soccer team. I just don't think that is the reality.
1: And, and even to extend it further, even if they did change the way the, te- the way the team plays and maybe they get a goal, maybe they get a win here or there, I think that is down to the individual. And and, and that's where I'm saying, like, maybe Ibobasi is scoring a goal. Maybe Eric Williamson is dribbling his way through and then doing like the FIFA pass for a tap in. But it's still about the individual creating something from nothing because there's not the team-wide system that's creating opportunities because the system itself creates the chances. And and I think that, again, it emphasizes that maybe they could do some things on an individual level, but I think the problem with the U.S., especially when they were chasing, especially when they were trying to create something later on in games, was that it ended up being, hey, take them on -on one-on-one. Try to make something happen individually to then open up chances for other people. I think it's why Jonathan Lewis stays on so late and Benji Michelle doesn't come on until... Basically, I think like people are exhausted and can't run anymore. We saw Benji Michelle not be as good in the one v1 take on department uh, across a number of games, and so I think for Jason Christ there wasn't a an idea of i'm going to put this guy on because they can combine really well and then I 'll move him inside and this person can go what like there wasn't that that level of tinkering and adjustment. I think it was i'm going to put this individual on and see what they can create uh, maybe that's doing a disservice to his coaching style and philosophy. it probably is, but I think that But it still would have relied on individual performers, which to me is a problem unless you have an individual performer who is that next level caliber that it makes sense to build around. Does that make sense to you?
2: Yeah, no, I I agree with you. There's not like a generational type talent in this group and Mm -hmm. even in the available pool the realistic available pool that could have gone to Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so it's just such a fine line. The margins are so small between Eric Williamson and Hassani Dotson or between Eric Williamson and even Andres Perea. Again, not arguing. I think Williamson is a better player probably than either one of those guys right now. Maybe not Dotson, but they're different guys. But the margins between Abobasi and Ferreira and Soto, they're so small. Like Abobasi's played – a lot of minutes out wide, which is not his best spot, in my view, at least. I think his best spot is as a nine, like Ben's talking about. But, I mean, he can't even really get on that in that number nine spot for his club team. The margins between these guys, it's like we're splitting hairs here, I guess. I feel like we're splitting hairs. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not sure really any other roster changes would have made this team infinitely better.
1: I agree with you, Joe Lowry. Uh, I think we've kind of combined answered those two questions. Uh, again, if you want to hear more about the USU 23s, the US men's team, the US women's team, Joe and I will be talking about it on stereo tonight, April 1st. There will be no April Fools jokes. Uh, <laughs> not that you know them. <laughs> not that I know of. Hopefully none. I'm not a big fan of <laughs> April Fools. It feels like it's just a time to be mean and then be like, just kidding. So. That's true. Uh, yeah. I won't. And on that note, (laughs) I will take us uh, to an ad break, and then we'll be back with more listener questions.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back to the Total Soccer
1: Show. Joe, we've got uh some more questions to get to. These a little more random, and I'm into it. The first one uh, from Robert Cordova, it's it's two questions, but uh one of them quicker than the other one, so I think we can get through both. Uh what are the Total Soccer Show's favorite away kits of their favorite club, and then uh of the UEFA Champions League winners from 2010 to 2020? Uh who is the best team and who is the weakest team? That's a loaded question. Uh, we'll get to that second part later. Right now, let's take the first part first. That makes sense. Joe, do you have a favorite away kit for your club?
2: So uh, I wanted to preface this. Maybe I'm soulless, but I don't necessarily <laughs> have a favorite team. Uh, so I just That's decided I was wondering about this. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't really have a favorite team. So I decided to pick my favorite away kits for the team that I've spent the most time covering in person. So that's Phoenix Rising. And then the team that I talk about the most, which is the U.S. Mm-hmm. men's national team. Is that an okay way to kind I of like pivot it. the I question like to my interests? Okay. Cool. 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 So for Phoenix Rising first, I, I, last year, it's a young club after they rebranded. They used to be Arizona United down in the USL. They rebranded, got some new ownership, completely transformed that club. Uh, last year, their copper state kit is my favorite Away kit in Phoenix Rising short history. It's white with copper accents. Go look it up. I think it's sick. And maybe <laughs> maybe I'm not a fashion designer. Actually, I'm not a fashion designer. But I think it looks cool. <laughs> it's white with copper accents. Copper, uh, Arizona's a copper state. Copper mining was really big in Arizona in kind of the late 19th century. And then even after Arizona became a state in 1912, like that industry was still pretty prominent here, especially northern Arizona. So it's got that... Homage to the past and got that copper accent. And then the Jersey has every name in, in sort of a, a nice, neat copper looking font. The Jersey, yeah, I guess it's not really copper looking, but it's copper colored. There we go. The Jersey has the name of every city in Arizona on the sleeves. So it's this clean looking Jersey. It's, it's like MLS has all these white jerseys with some light accents I think this execution from Phoenix Rising is what MLS should be striving for. It somehow is, it somehow manages to straddle the line between looking clean and looking like it's simple, but also still
1: being exciting and not just a boring white t-shirt. <laughs> I, I like that quite a bit, Joe. I've never seen this jersey and now I'm going to have to go look it up because that's yeah, cool. That's a lot of detail in there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so that's my Phoenix Rising one. And then for the U.S. men's national team, I really don't know if this is my favorite, but I'm gonna pretend it is. It's the denim kit from 1994. Come on, it's so bad, but so good. I just have this picture of Alexi Lalas burned into my brain on a constant basis mm-hmm. of him wearing that kit with his long flowing red locks. It's just, it's too good
1: not to be included here. I appreciate you saying it's bad because I feel like it has become a jersey that everybody recognizes. And like I think when we did the 361 Hall of Fame way back when, like we used that as the color scheme yeah, inspiration. But it is, but it is also because it's so bad. <laughs> so when there's really, like, if you ever see that jersey in real life, it's real baggy and it looks real weird. So and bad. It's great, but it is, it is so bad, it's great. Not, it's actually secretly, like, really good. It, it's, it's just a ridiculous jersey. But I'm with you. I think that's probably my favorite away one for the U.S. My favorite away one for Manchester United, uh, is, either going to be the one they have next year, if that's the, the reality, if that's the real kit, but it's a, <laughs> I think a play on the one from 19, 1991, 1992. Which is they occasionally uh, go blue. Uh, not to say that they use foul foul language, but they actually sometimes use blue as their kit. They did it with like the kind of like window pane uh, blue jersey when Robin van Persie was playing there. But this oh, one, yeah. it's got the old school uh, Adidas logo, so it's got the like the like three leaves with the lines going through them, uh, and it looks a little bit like a blue and white uh, 3D poster. You know when you like stare at it for a while yeah, and then the yeah. image appears. I've never successfully gotten the image to appear. <laughs> Maybe if you stare this one long enough a different sponsor shows up but it's the blue and the white with the red trim it's just a great look and it and it does feel like one that uh that maybe has come back into fashion, or may- maybe it went from being like out of fashion to back in, which is probably why they're utilizing it uh, again potentially next season. But I, I do like the sort of different colors that stand out as opposed to I think of late Man United has gone for like very light pink. They've gone for like a champagne. I was I'm not a big fan of the zebra one either. I like kind of changing it up to get different looks in there. So I'm gonna go ninety one ninety two slash maybe next season for my favorite away kit.
2: Yeah, the classic Adidas logo is, is pretty sweet. I think more, more teams should have that branded. It's a nice, like
1: retro look now, especially. I yep. like your choices, Taylor. I like your choices. I appreciate that. We'll see if you like my choices for the next part of this question, uh, which is, yeah, from the UEFA Champions League winners from 2010 to 2020, who's the best team and who's the weakest team? So I did a lot of reading about this one. Uh, I want to own that one up front because my brand is a goldfish, but I also don't want to, act as though I remember every single team that played and every single team that went to a final and so I have this answer definitively. What I can say is I have certain memories of certain teams that I then read some more about to either dispel or feel justified in my selection. And the fundamental point would be that these are all teams that won the Champions League. So none of them are bad. You can't have a bad team that wins the Champions League, but you can have. And what I've done with it is, let's say you put those winners into a competition where you had the, the teams that played on that day, the starting 11s and the substitutes. If they're all playing each other, who gets eliminated the first and who goes the furthest? And that's how I've framed this one. Joe, do you want the best team or the worst team?
2: Uh, hit me with the worst team first. I'm always more of a, let's get the bad news out of the way first and then get to the good news kind of
1: guy. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's the way we should go. Uh, I will go. It, it is probably the, the not the one that stood out to me. The one that stood out to me was the Real Madrid team that beat Atletico Madrid when Diego Costa tries to play with a torn hamstring and has to be subbed out in the eighth minute. Uh, Atleti are one 0 up until the like ninety third and Ronaldo scores an equalizer and then Atleti finally are just like worn off the pitch and they lose four to one. But that's still such a talented Real Madrid yeah. team with that front line. The BBC dominating and you had Angel Di Maria playing midfield. You had so many good people in that squad. It's tough for me to say like no, they were bad and got lucky or anything like that what I will go with is the 2012 Chelsea team for a couple different reasons again not saying they were bad but there is a narrative around that squad that they got fortunate results that they were key penalties missed by opposition players at key moments Um, I would go less with that and more with two things one they were a less heralded team at that time. Not just like Chelsea have have Roman Abramovich money. They're always going to be a team that people take seriously. But the talent they were going up against, I, I think they were kind of consistently seen as the underdogs in that competition. That's when they have, I believe, Roberto Di Matteo as their manager. Um, and I think he's going with a pretty defensive approach. And it would have been a team that I think were seen as like, look at these like scrappy underdogs fighting their way through, except it's Chelsea with Abra- Roman Abramovich's money. So you don't have that sort of neutral support and neutral interest I remember not really being that interested in this Champions League final, which ends uh, in a shootout after Chelsea uh, finishes in Regulation 1-1. I think Arjen Robben misses a penalty in that game. And it really was a a defensive team that then took their chances really well. And whenever you have Didier Drogba in there, you're always going to be a threat. But I think they're missing a lot of their key players. And if they're replaying this tournament with this eleven, they don't have Ivanovic, they don't have Murielish, they don't have Ramirez, they don't have John Terry due to suspension. So I think overall, that was not the strong team we've ever seen in the Champions League. So that would be my answer. Taylor, I have the exact
2: same pick for my okay. weakest Champions League team. I did some reading. I did some looking even outside the scope of that Champions League final. Chelsea that year, in, in that 2011-2012 season, they finished sixth in the in the Premier League, which is still fine. It got them into European competition, but it didn't get them back to the Champions League the next year. They, I mean, it's hard to balance those competitions, right? And so we can clearly see especially in hindsight, that they did end up prioritizing one over the other. But Chelsea had to fire Andre villas during the season, midway through the year, I believe it was in March. And they brought in that interim manager that you mentioned. And mm-hmm. and they don't have the strongest league season. They're not a top five team in the Premier League that year. They come into the Champions League final. Yes, DDA Drogba gets a goal in that game. But they don't win it in convincing fashion. Against a, granted, very good Bayern Munich team. But between their league finish and the the lack of managerial stability that year... I also have Chelsea as kind of the weakest
1: Champions League winner over the last 10 years. But still, man, that's not a bad place to be. No, it's not, and you're absolutely right that it's like Di Matteo comes in, and this was the season for for folks who uh, who forgotten where it was like Bosch trying to change things up the way they're playing. That's when John Terry does not play nearly as much. That's when Frank Lampard starts to be phased out a little bit, and then there's the kind of player revolt behind the scenes. Vashbos sacked. Terry comes back in. All is right, except they still don't win uh, the, the the league. They finish outside the Champions League spots. Roberto Di Matteo, though, because they have this Champions League victory, is kept on but then pretty much immediately sacked when things do not continue to go well. So I think, on the whole, it was a team that was dysfunctional, but still found a way to win. And while that is, to their credit, it does not make them one of the best teams. Uh, Let's let's pivot over, Joe, to the best possible teams uh, of these last 10 years. I think I have two nominees, though I lean more towards one, but I would like to hear what you have to say. This was so hard. This was so hard. I was Mm -hmm.
2: surprised at kind of how easily, after I did a bit of research, The 2011-2012 Chelsea team stood out. And I'm sure there are arguments for them to not be the worst team. But, man, for picking the best team, this was so hard. You mentioned BBC earlier. I want to mention Mm. MSN in my answer. My choice is the 2014-2015 Barcelona. I like this question as well before I explain why, because I feel like there's no wrong answer to this one. I feel like you can reasonably make an argument for so many of the teams that won over the last decade. But yeah, my choice, 2014-2015 Barcelona, coached by Luis Enrique. They win La Liga that season. They lead La Liga in goal difference with plus 89. That's insane. Plus 89 goal difference (laughs) over, I believe, a 38-game season. It's, it's That's bonkers. It blows my mind. They had Lionel Messi, Luis Suarez, and Neymar up top from right to left. You get that MSN in the front line. Sergio Busquets at the base of midfield. Iniesta and Rakitic flanking him as the other two midfielders in Enrique's midfield three. You have Denny Alves at right back. Jordi Alba at left back. I mean, this is... It's not the Pep Guardiola Barcelona that actually comes to my mind first. Mm-hmm. But it is still a hugely effective, probably faster version of Barcelona. And they were so good that year. I used this question as an excuse to go back and just watch Mm -hmm. a crap ton of highlights. And I had so much fun yesterday afternoon. You guys don't even know. This (laughs) Barcelona team
1: was so good, Taylor. They were so good. I agree. I had them as well. Uh, if you look at what they did in the Champions League alone, in the group stage, they're in a group with Opwell uh, PSG, and Ajax. They lost one game to PSG. They won all the rest. Uh, in the knockout rounds, they had a 3-1 aggregate win over Man City. They won both legs of that one. They had a 5-1 aggregate win over PSG. They won both of those as well. Then they knock out Bayern 5-3 on aggregate, losing the second game. Obviously still advancing. And I think for the overall competition, I'm not even sure with the final, but I think with the final included, they had 31 goals for and 11 against. So they're still conceding goals, which makes them a little bit interesting. They do have plenty of clean sheets, but 31 goals is a not insubstantial number. And I think to your point, when you look at what they did in the league, I think little Messi has over 40 goals that season, just like in the domestic front. It might be all competitions, but it's just so many goals, so many attacking threats. If you lock down one, three other ones pop up and they're just so difficult to play against. Even that the win in the final, it's over a strong Juve team who knocked out Dortmund, a very young but very talented Monaco team, and then Real Madrid with I think Varvar Morata scoring for Juve against his former club. Then he ends up going back, and it doesn't work out so well for him. But that was a really good Juve team that were kind of taken apart by Barcelona in the final.
2: Who Who else were you tempted to choose? Because I I was also tempted by. It was hard for me to pick one specific Real Madrid team somewhere in Mm -hmm. their three-peat. But just the fact that they did that was insane under Zinedine Zidane. And then I was also tempted by Pep Guardiola's Barcelona in Mm -hmm. 2010-2011. I don't think that was his best Barcelona team. It was probably the year before then, in in 2009-2010. But that that 2010-2011 team was still incredible as uh, having Messi as the number 9 dropping in and yesterday Xavi Busquets in midfield they dominated possession pretty much everywhere they went. But who did you have as another option, Taylor?
1: Um I did not have any of those Real Madrid teams either and you're right that I think I probably looked at that as a collective Like, treble, and instead of seeing that for the monumental achievement it was, it was like, I remember there being like, oh, like, how is he gonna do this again? Like, there was this, I, like, and obviously he, he, Zidane leaves and then comes back, but I think I have like negative, Thoughts about that that are probably unfair. So maybe I should have given them a little bit more attention. A team that I did look at once again and was impressed by once again is the Liverpool team that eliminated or that uh, defeated Tottenham in the final. But it kind of sets up that Liverpool team that then go on to win the Premier League and have uh, a lot of success yeah. in doing so. But that's, I mean, that team that knocks out Tottenham, it's a very familiar team with uh, that Salah Firmino-Mane front line. But that's, I feel like, when it was sort of in its... Prime or like just before it hits that like, oh, this is completely unplayable. And just watching that Liverpool team, you just saw this incredibly dominant squad that was a unit that they played as a cohesive unit. You have Diva Karigi coming in and scoring in the 87th minute. Like, does that mean that Diva is better than some of the players we've been talking about? No, certainly not. But I think this was such a good team like emphasizing that word underlining the word team that I think that's why they stand out to me that it's just a collective unit that I wouldn't say are all the players you first think of as being world-class like front and center they're definitely in my 11 Virgil van Dijk probably is but like Jean Matip is probably not for me Uh, but they still are just so dominant from start to finish and then obviously going to be very dominant in the league next season so Liverpool were my other sort of honorable mention
2: you basically said it but the Champions League is just Divac Origi's playground right we all know it it's the truth (laughs)
1: We all know it. We've all said it for so, so long.
2: (laughs) Uh, Joe, any, anything else to say about this one? No, but this was an awesome question. Thank you, Mm -hmm. Robert. That was, that was a ton of fun to research.
1: That was a great question. The next one I also really, really enjoyed. It comes from Shreyas Romani. Am I I underestimating the United States, or will 2022 World Cup qualifying be uh, potentially more tricky than people think? There's Mexico, up-and-coming teams like Jamaica and Canada, an always competitive Costa Rica team, and potentially some tricky underdogs like Trinidad and Honduras. Only four teams can advance, and it's not that far-fetched to see the U.S. having to go through the playoffs. They definitely can't afford to get off to an ultra-slow start like in 2016. Joe, how say you. I agree, Chris. Mm-hmm. I think
2: I think World Cup qualifying is going to be really tricky. I don't know if it's going to be more tricky than people think because I don't know what people think. But the US I mean you cannot underestimate the difficulty of World Cup qualifying. If there's one thing that I was reminded of from Olympic qualifying, it's how dangerous it can be to underestimate teams in CONCACAF. That said, The U.S. should qualify for the 2022 Mm -hmm. World Cup. If they do not, something has gone horribly wrong and there are real issues that we need to examine throughout that qualifying cycle. They absolutely positively should qualify for 2022. This is the most talented U.S. team ever. They have some depth now that they haven't really had before. They have top-end talent that they haven't had before. But yeah, World Cup qualifying is hard, man. It's hard in CONCACAF. It's going to be tricky. You go down in... Taylor,
1: are we calling it the Ocho or the Octagon? We need to make a TSS kind of final (laughs) choice here. Which is it? John went with the Octagon, and I think I will only be able to think of the Ocho as ESPN 8, the Ocho, okay. so I'm going to say the Octagon. Let's go with the Octagon. Okay, so you get in the Octagon.
2: I like how we made that call. Or now. do we Just... go with the Oct?
1: The oh, Oct, Joe, since we went with the Hex? Now, let's go with Octagon. <laughs> let's call
2: Octagon. Okay, so in the Octagon, I'm glad we've got that all settled. You've got Mexico, you've got the U.S., you've got Costa Rica, Jamaica, Honduras, and then three other teams from the region. And you and John Arnold talked about this you know, on yesterday's show as we're, as we're recording on Thursday. Great show. Go listen to it. Good interview. All that good Stuff. Thank you. I mean, in in those in those teams alone, before you add in the other three teams, as Shreyas mentioned, there are there's real talent there. Mexico, obviously talented. Costa Rica, challenging, even though they're not at their best. Jamaica, if they get everything settled, they are a really really talented team. Honduras, tricky. Then you get it could be Canada, it could be Curacao, it could be Panama, El Salvador, Haiti. You get the idea. There are tricky teams here, and so yeah, World Cup
1: qualifying is going to be hard. Don't mm-hmm. underestimate it. You should not. But I think what I would encourage Shreyas and some other people who have this same level of anxiety to do is see if they have sort of a divider up between the way they see the U.S. and the way they see CONCACAF. Because the reason why I love this question, I know that probably didn't make sense. I will try to explain it more. But the reason why I love this question is because it made me sort of connect some dots in a way that I have not done previously, because I look at the U.S. team and it is I think one of, one of, if not the most talented teams, I would say it is the most talented U.S. team when you look at the overall talent pool that we've ever had. And so you see that and you think like they're so good, they've got to qualify. But I think 2016 looms large or the failure to qualify in 2017 rather. I think the Olympic failure again. It stands out as like, well, can they ever qualify? Are they ever going to be good enough? And you have this immediate, this team is so good, but I'm nervous about them. And there's a wall there. And then I look at CONCACAF and it's Curacao developing. It's Jamaica recruiting. It's Suriname recruiting and suddenly getting better. It's Canada looking stronger. And you do have more quality, I think, across the board in CONCACAF than we've had in a very long time. Yes. And... And when you have that sort of division up, you see those two things as existing in different realities. And when you kind of unite them, it makes a lot more sense. What I would go with is the, uh, Jarvis. I couldn't remember the character's name. Jarvis from The Avengers. Like he has the line about like our very strength invites challenge. And I think that's the thing that I wasn't really looking at is like the US is, I think, as strong as it's been from a talent perspective. And of course, that's going to mean that other teams are going to elevate. They're going to have to find new ways to remain competitive. And let lest we forget, CONCACAF is trying to make it so that the smaller nations have more games, have more competitive fixtures so that they can improve. To some extent, this is the system working in my mind. And so I think like like uh, to look at these CONCACAF teams as getting better, they are. But then you have to, I think, see the U.S. and if you expect them to approach these games with a sincerity and with a like sort of all all guns blazing approach i think the us should absolutely be qualifying and i think they should be doing it with relative comfort i think this is where greg burhalter is going to be and his experience is going to be so important because he's a man who's gone through CONCACAF World Cup qualifying he has played in these games he knows how how it can be I think he will have a going back to Jason Christ for a moment I think he will have Berhalter more of an approach of what do I have to do to win this game to get a result away in Honduras away in Curacao if that ever happens like he will I think be a little bit more inclined to prepare his team because he has the familiarity now with their system to set up to handle an individual opponent and then handle the next individual opponent. I feel like some of the problems in Olympic qualifying were Jason Christ relying on the system and hoping that these players could figure it out, hoping that the system would come into play. And then he's trying to adjust the system as opposed to setting up to really handle the opponent on the individual day on an individual basis. And I do think that the U.S., is going to have a trickier time. I think they are going to have more difficult opposition from start to finish, but I think they should be more than capable of handling that if they take it seriously and are prepared for every game. That's sort of my, my big read on the overall point that Treyas is asking about.
2: I love how you brought in Berhalder's experience as a player in World Cup qualifying because the U.S. has the talent right now to outplay every team in CONCACAF and to compete with Mexico. That's I, – I genuinely believe that. But that's with a nice field and in good conditions with a roster full of well-rested guys. World Cup qualifying gets messy. And this is one of the reasons, Taylor, that I love Berhalter's decision to tinker a little bit in that Northern mm-hmm. Ireland game. You yep. play the 3-4-3, but it, it's really not a 3-4-3 in that game. It's either – Kind of a 3-2-1-4. I think that adds up to 10 outfield players. But I mean, the, the idea was in that game, we saw a lot of moments when Christian Polisic would come inside and play as a 10 in, in the middle of the attack. Or Giorena would drift in and play as a 10 in the middle of the attack. I think there's real value in recognizing that sometimes when you're playing on the road in Honduras on a field that, that sucks, you can still pass the ball. You can still overall keep your principles. But maybe in that game you need to let Christian Pulisic cook just a little bit more than you mm-hmm. might on a field in Columbus, Ohio, where it's well kept in a new shiny stadium, and you've got everything going for you, and you can pass the ball and be comfortable out there. There are going to be moments in World Cup qualifying where Christian Pulisic needs to take, needs to take over, or Weston McKinney needs to take over, or Gio Reyna, or Sergio Dest. And and what encourages me about this group is they have the talent to do that. In ways that I think the, the comparisons between the 23s and the senior team is is tenuous at best, but I think they have the ability to do that in ways that the U23s just simply didn't in the, in the ways that past qualifying cycles, especially 2017, really didn't have either.
1: Yeah, and I and I think when we're looking at past qualifying cycles, I think the U.S. can also learn a lot from what happened in 2017. I think the Olympic teams less so because it's just new talent coming through, it's new player pools, it's just very different situations from tournament to tournament. With World Cup qualifying this time around, I think you can look at 2017 and I think... Amongst the many, many mistakes that happened in there, I do think Bruce Arena brought in a mentality of what worked in the past, which was you draw on the road, you win at home, and that will give you enough points to be in the top three, and then you qualify. And I think that didn't work when they didn't get the results at home, obviously, but I also think... If you have the the talent that the U.S. has, I think that's where the prepare for the individual opponent, go there, set yourself up in the best possible way, and then trust your talent to find a way through because it can, but because the system allows them to. I think – we can learn from that and be a little bit more aggressive in the approach this time around. I would expect that. I would hope for that. I hope we don't see the U S going to Honduras and sitting deeper and being very cautious because a draw is enough in this situation. I would like to get more wins on the road, especially early. So we feel better about the long-term prospects.
2: Yeah. And and to cycle all the way back, maybe to tie a bow on this, it's going to sure. be tricky. There are going to be games that are hard and where things just aren't mm-hmm. coming together, but I think that's OK. That's always going to be that's always going to be the case in World Cup qualifying. Excuse me. The U.S. is talented enough to get there. Now we just get to sit back and watch and, and talk
1: about it as it happens. We do indeed. I'm excited for it, albeit apprehensive, which I'm guessing is where <laughs> Shreyas is. But hopefully that apprehension is slightly reduced for Shreyas and other listeners. Uh, Joe, one more break and then we will be back with two more questions to round out the show. All right, Mr. Lowry, we have another question. This one from Matt Koss. If a defender repeatedly screamed at a forward when when defending, uh, not insults, just pure intimidation screams, would he get cautioned or a card? And if not, why hasn't any player done this? I love the term intimidation
2: scream, Matt. Yeah. That's, that's great. <laughs> like it's a certain genre of scream. Like you could have a fear scream, you could have an insult scream, you could have an intimidation scream. I love it. I'm here for it. Uh you can't. You can't do that. That's why people don't do it, and that's why we haven't seen it. According to the laws of the game, Mm -hmm. players can be cautioned for unsporting behavior, and included under that unsporting behavior umbrella is verbally distracting an opponent during play or at a restart. So yelling, Taylor is a no-no. And I've actually experienced this secondhand, I guess, not firsthand because I didn't do it, but it happened in a game that I played in. Was it it an opponent telling you to leave the ball? (laughs) No. So it was a game back in high school. We were significantly worse than the other team and one of my teammates decided we were back defending on our box and he decided to kind of yell just to try to mm-hmm. put the attacker as they're about to shoot and the referee blew his whistle and we were so confused none of us knew this rule and he gave mm-hmm. an indirect free kick inside the box we all yep. lined up in front of the goal they didn't score we still lost two to nothing it was it was <laughs> it was not the best time but still okay
1: yeah yeah, and it's credit to, to your official for, for calling that one. I think it's one of those rules that is in the books, but sometimes is stringently enforced and sometimes is a talking to after the play has gone. And that's what I've experienced. Sometimes if it is that sort of like, you're doing it and it's really, really obvious or the, the other one that happens, I think every now and then is, is if there's like a goal kick taken long, one player goes to challenge for it and then the other opponent will say like, oh, like leave it. And then the player will back off thinking that's their teammate and it's not. Right. That's where you can get that, that immediate, uh, whistle blown. Sometimes it is a booking if it is like the referee trying to stamp that out immediately. But yeah, you, you can't, uh, go about doing the intimidating shout like you would in maybe World of <laughs> Warcraft. Instead, yeah, you have to just sort of, uh, do your best to defend. Uh, and maybe just instead of trying to throw them off with like a, a shout, maybe just throw them off with a little bit, little, a little gentle shove as they're shooting that won't get called. You've got to be crafty in the, in the dark arts. You can't just be screaming out loud. That's right. Let's use intimidation shoves, not intimidation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, final question then, Joe, comes from Kenneth Sidon. I can't tell if this one will be a short one or a very long one. We'll find <laughs> out. Which two national teams, uh, if they could combine, would vault themselves into serious World Cup title contenders but are not currently considered serious contenders right now?
2: So the term serious contenders is a little Mm -hmm. bit ethereal, a little bit nebulous, but I just decided to make that up and choose a list of teams that I couldn't use for this question. So no Belgium, no France, Spain, Portugal, England, Germany, Italy, Brazil, or Argentina. You can argue with me about that. I think we don't need to split too many hairs, everybody on that one. But I, I knocked out a lot of the teams that I thought were genuine contenders. They have the talent to go win right now, and I wouldn't be surprised. The first two teams, because I have two different combined national teams that I've made. The first oh is is the United States and Mexico. I had to do it. Oh, it's man. either usa Mexico or Mexa-USA, depending on <laughs> how you want to combine these names.
0: Mm-hmm. But
2: if you think about the talent that these two teams have in their player pools, I think if you combine these groups, they turn into not only a giant in CONCACAF, but they turn into a really competitive team that I think could go toe-to-toe with, maybe they wouldn't be favored against a lot of the teams that I just mentioned as legit contenders or serious contenders. But I wouldn't be shocked if us Exico or Mexa USA came out and, and played a song, a strong game, excuse me, against a team like Belgium in a World Cup.
1: I I don't disagree with you, but I ran into an obstacle. Did you say that you built a starting 11? I did. I did build a starting All right, perfect. 11. perfect. Because where I got tripped up, Felipe, I think it was Felipe, wrote an article recently yep. about mm-hmm. like who has the strength between Mexico and the United States, and where things were sort of even, slash, to me, a little bit uh, up in the air, is who did you have in goal, and who did you have as your two fullbacks, Joe? Yeah, okay, you got me there. You got me there. I have
2: uh, Memo Ochoa in goal. Mm-hmm. And I have Jesus Gallardo at left back and Serginho Dest at right back. I, they were tricky. Goal and left back, especially I think were the two hardest picks on this roster for me.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, and I think that maybe shows how this is probably a good answer that we were already going into like well what what are the, the small problems as to why it might not work with rosters and with World Cup teams you always are going to have some areas of concern but I think you're right that like these minor things aside you have so much del- depth elsewhere on the field like and it, it also like the strengths of Mexico do sort of solve some of the US's problems yeah. you have uh, Raul Jimenez now as your probable starter would be my guess you've probably got Chicharito in there maybe Josh Sargent still in the conversation <laughs> but I think some of the center forward options lock in a little bit more. There's a ton of depth in midfield. I think this is a very good team, Joe.
2: Yeah, to just run through my lineup quickly, just for the heck of it, since I built it, I might as well share it. I have Please. Ochoa in goal. I have Serginho Dest at right back. Carlos Sacedo at right center back. John Brooks at left center back. Gallardo at left back. And then my midfield, I just listed a bunch of options. So I, <laughs> I'm fine if you want to go. It's an Alvarez or Tyler Adams at the six. I'm not really too mm-hmm. fussed one way or the other. And then as my two number eights, I, I built a 4-3-3. I should have said that sooner. But as my two number eights, I've got either McKenney or Musa or Hector Herrera. You can toss any two of those three guys. As the number eight, Sebastian Legette might have a shout, but I didn't want to ruffle too many feathers. And I, I do think those three players are a bit better than lejet So I have those two guys, two of those three as my number eights. And then I have Raul Jimenez up top, Chucky Lozano on the right, and Christian Pulisic on the left. That frontline Taylor, makes me feel things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh I, I I'm gonna assume it's like excited things for how good they could be, but yes. also sad that we won't ever get to see that team also play that. together. Both. Yep. Both of all the things. All <laughs> of those things. I, I like it. I, I had I had uh, I had Mexico in the USA as well. Nice. I did find it a bit more difficult to build, but I think that is the one like one way of approaching this question is how do you build the best combined team that like gives you the best chance? Uh, Joe, anything else to say about those two teams? No, I'm curious. I'm curious about either yeah. your thoughts
2: on USA Mexico, US Mexico, or Mexico USA or any other two countries you wanted to combine.
1: Well, so I went that route as well. But then I think there's the alternate route of how do you take a team that is already very good and add in a couple components yeah. that make them that next level. And I was looking at basically who are some players who should be playing in the World Cup or going very far, go far in their club competitions because they're not surrounded by maybe people from their own national team. Uh, and the number one player that stood out to me was Erling Haaland. Yeah. So how do you get Erling Holland in a team that is going to then like jump a tier because of it and I think the answer is you combine Norway with Senegal. Ooh. If you put a, a Norway Senegal squad together I had really only two Norwegians going into the 11. It's Erling Holland, It's Martin Odegaard behind him. Maybe it's Omar uh, el as one of your center backs, but you do have Salif Sané, and then obviously you have Koulibaly. Uh, oh, but Odegaard is your number 10 in like a four-two-three-one 2 3 one with uh, Idrissa Ganege, Mendy behind him. Uh, and then obviously Sadio Mane on one side. Maybe Ismail Sar on the other. It's just I like the idea of having two very mobile fast attackers who are uh, world-class or close to world-class in Sar's case uh, around BuzzFeed Around Erling Holland, who can obviously create on his own. Martin Odegaard can pull the strings as that number 10 in midfield, but has the midfield cover behind him. And then you've got uh, Mendy from Chelsea in goal. Like, you've got a ton of talent in Senegal already, and I think adding just a couple more pieces pushes them to that next level where maybe they're in that conversation for Dark Horse or Out and Out favorite. But either way, I, I like my Norway Senegal's combination. Norwaygal, Seno Sen- I'm yeah. not sure. You can go either yeah. one. Yeah. Either way on that <laughs> either one. Either way. <laughs> you and I
2: did not talk about this beforehand. We did not share notes. We had the same Mexico USA. We mm-hmm. also had one of the same teams for our second answer. I also picked Norway, but okay, I I combined them with a different team. I combined them with a fellow Scandinavian okay. national team. I want to take Sweden's tactical framework. This is the most me answer ever. This is the most me answer ever. I want to take their structure under Jan Andersen. I'm just going to go for it, unashamed. I'm not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed. Yeah, you're fine. You're fine. I I want to take that 4-4-2, that solid, tight 4-4-2 block that can be so effective in international soccer. We saw it uh, at the 2018 World Cup where Sweden helped eliminate Italy and the Netherlands along the way to qualifying. And then they win Group F ahead of Mexico and Germany and South Korea. In 2018, and then they beat Switzerland in the round of 16 before losing to England in the quarterfinals. They made it a long way, partially, at least because of, I think, their tight defensive structure. That 4-4-2 that Anderson uses makes life miserable for the other team. It's that deep lock that's effective for Atletico Madrid in, in club situations. That it's that same idea that was kind of effective for France at that World Cup as well. France just has a, a way more talent than Sweden does. So I want to take that basis and that that starting foundation and add in Erling Holland up top and add in Martin Odegaard on the right side. I want to have Odegaard play as a right midfielder in okay. that 4-4-2 so you're not losing any defensive solidity in midfield, at least in the center of midfield. So you have Odegaard cutting inside on his left in transition, especially threading through balls in behind the line for Erling Holland as one of those front two. But next to Erling Holland, Taylor, is Zlatan Ibrahimović because oh he's God. out of international retirement he's back in Sweden's team as they're trying to qualify for the World Cup can you imagine for oh one God. second what it would be like if Erling Holland and Zlatan Ibrahimović played together I'm just kind of staring up at my ceiling right now wondering thinking pondering man I, that would be so fun so Swedeway or Norden uh, I think you would have a good chance of doing some dangerous things in the World Cup
1: I think we should just go with a combined Viking eleven and <laughs> yeah. throw Denmark in there as well, because then you've got like Yusuf Poulsen yeah. that you could then have the tallest frontline in the world. <laughs> uh, but you'd have yeah Christian Eriksen, uh, Hoybirg uh, from Tottenham, yeah. uh, Thomas Delaney from Dortmund. Yeah, you, the combined Viking eleven could be uh, problematic for a number of different reasons.
2: And I love, I guess, to go back to your answer. I love that you use Senegal. I was thinking through as you were talking and and the way you prefaced your answer with who are some players that maybe don't go quite as far in international competitions but are so good. Mosullah in Egypt is another one, right? I mean, they have Ooh, talent yeah, on that squad outside of Mosalah, but you combine them with a team like Norway or with, I mean, you can do so yeah. many different things with this question. You combine Mosullah with the United States and you put Mosullah as a number nine or you give him to Mexico. I mean, you can do a lot of things with this kind of second tier teams outside of the serious contenders and you can have some, you can have some real fun making this happen.
1: What well, one that I one question we we got that I think we entertained doing an entire show about but ended up not doing that maybe you and I can do, Joe, is if for the next World Cup, uh if there were a rule in place that every World Cup team, starting with the lowest ranked in the FIFA rankings, could draft one player into their squad who was not participating in the World Cup. What would they do and how would they do it? I would That's love awesome. to see, yeah, a team that qualifies, like let's say it's, it's Canada makes it through to the 2022 World Cup. Who are they bringing in from the eligible <laughs> players to push them to a more competitive standpoint? I, I like the idea of doing some of those fictional hypothetical uh, 11s. But I'm also interested in Viking FC or in, uh, what was your portmanteau?
2: My portmanteau was either Swedeway or Norden. But Viking <laughs> FC is way cooler. Let's not get ourselves.
1: <laughs> Swedeway. That just found, it seems like a, uh, a Swedish supermarket to me.
2: I was going to say it sounds like the subway in Sweden. Or, I don't that's know, probably, somebody, that's metro definitely a better system. way to put it. Yeah. Yes,
1: yes. <laughs> it's built on ice and you just, uh, yeah, sled through. You that's eat reindeer works. along the way.
2: Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. <laughs>
1: On that fitting note, somehow, <laughs> uh, whenever we go totally random, that that tends to mean it's time to end the show. Yes, and I think correct. Uh, eating reindeer on the Swedish subway, whatever that might be, is probably a good note to end on. So, Joe, thank you very much for taking all the time to answer uh, these Lister questions with me today. Of course, my friend. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening, and we will talk to you all again very, very soon.